Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly has said he expects the use of COVID-19 booster vaccines to be extended significantly as case numbers of the virus continue to rise. It's all hands on deck in terms of getting these boosters out. With the health service in crisis, President of the Irish Association for Emergency Medicine, Dr Fergal Hickey, joins us. Employment lawyer Richard Grogan and IBEX Maeve McElwee will be here to discuss what a return to work from home could mean for workers. And later, Father Peter McFerry on why we shouldn't forget about Ireland's homeless community. As always, we want to hear from you, the viewer. You can get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. Correspondent Gavin Riley joins me now via Skype for the very latest from tonight's ongoing Cabinet subcommittee meeting. But first, uh, let's hear what Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly had to say earlier on the modelling of COVID cases and the expansion of that booster vaccine programme. The pressure on our hospital system, including ICU, continues. We've received new modelling just in the last few hours, which suggests that the uh, cases, hospitalisations uh, and ICU will continue to rise. I'm expecting additional advice this evening from NIAC. Uh, I'll confirm it later when we have it, but the indications are it is positive in terms of adding a significant uh, additional number to the uh, those who would uh, be availing of boosters. Okay, we can join Gavin Riley now. And Gavin, um, you could see there that Stephen Donnelly, in particular, pointing to that modelling, um, quite alarming about 500 people potentially being in ICU um, with COVID-19 as he goes into that meeting about deciding where we go next. Yeah, the modelling is really what they're going to have to start working on, Claire. That's really the basis from which everything else flows. And the projections are pretty grave because when you take it uh, at the if you take it at face value and of course there'll be many people who will wonder about the merit of nefit modeling because it has proven to be wide of the mark in many previous instances but if you go back to last february in real life the highest number of people that we ever had in icu from covid-19 alone was in the mid 100s it was around the 150 mark the best case scenario from the modeling which is being presented to ministers tonight suggests that we will be somewhere between 200 and 220 or thereabouts, somewhere in the low 200s by the middle of December. So significantly in excess of the busiest that ICU was with COVID earlier this year. In a worst case scenario, and again, it must be said that Neffet's worst case pessimistic scenarios don't always come to pass, thankfully. But in a worst case scenario, they're talking about the need to have between four and 500 patients being treated in critical or intensive care for COVID-19. That is far beyond the capacity that the country has. 
At worst, uh, when the country was activating a lot of its surge capacity, again in February when ICU was at its busiest, we had an overall adult capacity for around about 330 intensive care beds. If you're looking at a situation where there's any more than that being required, you're looking at a wholesale, almost abolition, abandonment of pretty much every other element of traditional healthcare in the country, because in order to provide that much intensive care, you would have to sideline so many other ordinary healthcare services. And, and even in ordinary times, there's about 160 people in intensive care who are there for nothing to do with COVID. So if you're to try and have any kind of functional health service at all, you would basically have to strip back everything but the barest of the bare essentials in that worst case scenario. Okay, now also that Cabinet subcommittee is looking at other advice from NEFET around working from home um, and also I suppose potential restrictions <coughs> must be talked about or on the agenda there as well tonight. Yeah, which is a very thorny issue for ministers to deal with because it would effectively be an admission really that the grand experiment of trying to live with COVID is probably likely to end in failure, that ministers have been desperate not to try and impose any new curbs on the country because they want to try and prove that difficult and all as it might be and difficult as the workload arising could be, that Ireland can live alongside COVID. But if they are to try and protect the health service, then it's either going to have to be some kind of non-binding advice or maybe some kind of restrictions. It must be said, and this has to be stressed, that there is no talk this evening of the government genuinely contemplating any restrictions. The furthest they might go is to extend the use of the COVID certificate to other sectors, so beyond hospitality, and introducing it into areas like gyms or personal services, hairdressers, barbers, uh, beauticians and the like. That seems to be the extent of any restrictions. Now, again, there will be advice on the idea of work from home. Even that is something that ministers are quite tentative about because they are aware that if you shut down office culture again, if you encourage everyone to go back to working from home on a full-time basis, then a lot of other jobs are lost too. The ecosystem of people who work in professional services, servicing offices, or people who work in catering, who expect to have people working in offices nearby that they can cater to at lunch hours. A lot of those businesses also suffer. And bear in mind, we are now in a world where, officially speaking, you cannot apply for the pandemic unemployment payment anymore. So the government would have to think very carefully about that. I'm not getting any indications this evening that they are, as of yet, making any firm movements on that. But they are mindful that okay. anything they do recommend, even if it is for the benefit of the health service, does have other consequences economically too. OK, Gavin Riley, thank you for that update for us tonight. Now, with the country's hospital system reaching almost full capacity due to the ongoing rise in COVID-19 admissions, Dr Fergal Hickey, a consultant in emergency medicine in Sligo University Hospital and president of the Irish Association for Emergency Medicine, joins me now via Skype. Um, Dr Hickey, you're very welcome along to the programme. It's obviously an incredible, incredibly busy time for, for you and your colleagues. Um, I want to talk about this hospital system that is now under widespread pressure, according to the HSE. Can you tell us what you're seeing um, in Sligo right now, what you're hearing about what's happening in other hospitals across the country? Well, well, we know that we've been challenged for years. I mean, we're short of capacity by any standards, by OECD standards. We're very short of acute bed capacity. And we've known this for years, and attempts have not been made, or sufficient attempts have not been made to replace the capacity that we lost during the cutbacks or give us new capacity to accommodate all the patients who require acute healthcare. So at the moment, we've you know over 400 people on trolleys. We had over 2,300 people on trolleys during the first week of, of November. Uh, our intensive care units are bulging. It's very difficult to get somebody into an intensive care unit, whether they're COVID or non-COVID, because we're having to stream into two different areas. So effectively, the health service is on its knees. We're short of staff. We're short of infrastructure. We're short of capacity. 
And this has been going on for an extended period of time and complicated by a cyber attack. So it is really difficult at the mm. moment when people are at the end of their tether. We're hearing this phrase, uh, Fergal, surge capacity. That's people being ventilated outside ICU. What added pressure does this put on the system? Well, to, to ventilate somebody, not alone does it require the equipment and the ventilator, but it requires skilled staff. And, you know, intensive care units are set up for one-to-one one, one -one nursing uh, with medical oversight. Um, but if you start having to do it elsewhere in the, in the hospital, you're trying to split your medical and nursing staff and expect them to provide care to two people simultaneously or provide it on two sites, all of which is risky. We do not have the number of critical care nurses we need currently. So you're expecting non-critical care nurses to provide a critical care capacity, be that in an emergency department, be that in theater recovery, be that in an operating theater. So we, we, we struggle at the best of times, and we're struggling even more now. And if we were getting to a situation which uh, Nevis, in its worst-case scenario, was suggesting of having 500 patients mm. in critical care when we simply don't have that capacity, then inevitably there's going to be very poor outcomes. And our outcomes have been good up to now in spite of the numbers. Okay, uh, I want to bring my panel in at this point. Here in studio with me is Fianna Fáil TD, Willie O'Dea, and Sinn Féin TD, David Cullinan. And to you first, Willie O'Dea, when you hear about, first of all, this modelling and this worry from Neffet about potentially where the numbers could go in ICU, and then we talk to Dr Fergal Hickey, who's saying what it's like on the ground right now, a very difficult situation for all involved, and it hasn't been easy. Yeah, um, what, what, do you, what do you say to that? We're November 15th, you know, we're not even into the peak. Yeah, well, it's, <clears throat> sorry, it's a very grim situation, there's no doubt about that. But contrary to what some people might think, there isn't a sort of an impenetrable war between ourselves, government TDs, and people who are being affected by this. In Limerick, I can tell you, for example, a lot of my close friends and some of my own family are affected by this situation. So, you know, I'm acutely conscious of how bad the situation is. As you know, uh, we were gradually grinding down the figures until quite recently, and suddenly there was a, this upsurge. Now, the government has been spending a hell of a lot of money. I mean, last year, uh, they, this year rather, they will have recruited 7,000 extra staff. Next year, they're recruiting a further 8,000, which will bring capacity, which will bring the staffing levels up to about 144,000. Sure, nurses were protesting today about the staffing yeah, issue. Look, I, I understand all that. And I've spoken to nurses. I was speaking to nurses as late as yesterday. And, you know, the money, is, the government's first responsibility is to put the money in place to employ extra staff, which is precisely what we're doing which is precisely what the government is doing. Now, as regards the ICU situation, that is potentially very serious. Let's hope that the worst-case scenario doesn't come to pass. It hasn't come to pass in the past, in, in past modellings by, uh, by NIFED. Um, Pre-COVID, I think there was about 255 ICU beds in the country. Now, there's, uh, it's about 300. It'll be 321 by the end of the year. Uh, and, so we, and, and there's, okay. there's, there's provision for extra ICU Sorry, beds we, we, next we year. Have, we have an issue with, mm. with ICU beds that currently we, we have surge capacity in the Matter mm. Hospital. Mm. We have other hospitals facing into the same mm. situation. There isn't room. They're having to ventilate people outside of ICU because there's no room in ICU. Yeah, that's... Look, I, 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 hear, what, I hear what the consultant is saying and, I, I mean, I'm listening to my own people on the ground. I understand that situation. Uh, during the during the uh, economic downturn 
naturally, uh, there were cuts right across government expenditure, right across all different departments, including <coughs> health. And the one thing I would say, and this is my opinion, that during the Celtic Tiger era, when the economy recovered, uh, the beds lost haven't been replaced as quickly as they should have been. Right, OK. Whose fault is that? Well, it's government, look, isn't it? Well, 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 look, I mean, uh, you know, look, I mean, we're not going to get anywhere by stating the obvious. Yeah, it's so the government. So that is yeah, the obvious. It was, yeah. the, it, it, it was the fault of successive governments who were in power since, since we came out of recession. OK, David Conan, I want to bring you in here. The situation looks quite perilous tonight. Um, you know, we're hearing it across the board. We're hearing it from the HSE. We're hearing it from um, emergency consultants <coughs> on the ground. Well, over the last number of weeks, I've been in many counties and I've been in hospitals in Cork, in Kerry, in Limerick and Willie's constituency, in Sligo, where Fergal works, uh, in Galway and in Waterford and in many counties. And I've met hospital managers, I've met consultants, I've met nurses, I've met people on the front line, and I have never seen it as bad. The burnout, the low morale, the lack of capacity is having a real impact. And what are we seeing? Emergency department presentations on the up, the trolley count on the up, People can't be discharged from hospitals because we don't have enough step-down beds. And we're seeing uh, people seeing having their uh, procedures cancelled. Elective procedures are being cancelled almost right across mm. the board in most hospitals. And in mm. the budget just gone, in the budget just gone, there wasn't one single additional acute inpatient bed funded above what was previously committed. Not one single additional community bed. That was the time to put the capacity in. Today, the Minister launches a winter plan in the middle of a crisis. You cannot magic up beds. You cannot magic up staff. And when Willie talks about the 7,000 staff, and yes, that's good. Half of those are for contact tracing, for testing and tracing, for the vaccine rollout. Them, no. They are actually, no, Willie. Really. It is not, half. No, it's no, over 3,000 is for COVID, and the rest is, is in our acute hospitals. Well, COVID and, is our most immediate problem at the moment. And, and I accept that. And what I said is that I accept that. But when you say 7,000, those 7,000 are not working in the front line in our hospitals. If you listen to Fergal, and if you listen to those on the front line, they are saying that they cannot do okay. their job. And what I want to ask you is, because you're saying you can't magic up this be these beds, you can't magic up this capacity, you are bringing a plan to the Dáil tomorrow. So what's in the Sinn Féin plan? Can you magic something up now? Well, first of all, I brought forward a plan last June and I said to the Minister, and I was on programmes like this, that that if we don't act now, we'll be here in September, October and November with the government coming in the middle of a crisis with a plan. The time to put the capacity in was then. Obviously, it takes time to create beds, to put in place rapid okay. modular units, to recruit staff. So I can only start where the <coughs> government so have failed. So on that point, what, and of can, course, what do you what think we could be done do immediately? Is, well, you need to put more capacity in. You need more integrated care with the community. We have to work with GPs. We have to make sure that we take pressures off our acute hospitals. But we also need more capacity in, so we can build rapid modular units. But my point, Claire, is this, and you have to be fair about but this. Bill, when I called for this I, last June and last July, some people were questioning, well, why it will cost money and why now? The reason why I was calling for it now is okay. because it takes time to recruit the staff. It takes time to put the beds in place. And now we've left those on the front line operating quite literally with one hand tied behind their back. Okay. And it's deeply unfair. I want to bring um, you back in, Fergal Hickey, if I might. Just, uh, it's something that struck me that you said back in August, actually, about this situation. Um, and you were saying the overcrowding crisis in hospitals is being ignored by the HSE, which prefers to highlight its, its success in the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. That if all that infrastructure that's been put in place around testing and tracing and, uh, you know, around the vaccination scheme that's around the country, and we put that into acute beds, we wouldn't have this problem. Do you still feel the same way? 
Well, very much so. I mean, we know that the HSE has been very successful in setting up uh, a testing regime from scratch and a vaccination program from scratch. So there is evidence that the HSE can do it when the political and managerial will is there to do it. The first recorded case of a patient spending a night on a trolley is 1998. And for the past almost two and a half decades, the situation has been allowed to get worse for the want of bed capacity. My point was, we know what the solution is. Why can't we get on and do it rather than either talk about it or hope the problem goes away, which has been the approach to date. But we have evidence that the HSD can do something and do something enormous when it puts its mind to it. And we have a track record in this country. We know, for example, when we had the scourge of TB, we had a significant hospital building program then to deal with it. We could do that again. We just need the political will and we need to just get on with it rather than just talk it to death, which unfortunately seems to be the standard approach. So what do you think needs to happen now as an immediate and urgent measure? What, what could happen um, that could help us this winter as we face into what is a perennial crisis, but with the added load of COVID-19 in our system? I mean, David Cullinan has made the point, and, and he's right, that you can't create capacity overnight. You need, you know, there's, a, there's a long lead-in period, and particularly overly long lead-in period. The whole process of getting capital approval in the HSE is a particularly slow and painful process. So we need to accelerate those processes. That's one thing. We also need to, to actually make sure that the remaining part of the population who has chosen not to get vaccinated is vaccinated. We need to encourage them. There's lots of people who don't understand or they're, or they're taking their advice from social media or taking their advice within their own ethnic communities. We need to get through to that group and explain to them the importance of vaccination. We also need to roll out the third dose, effectively the booster program, and accept the fact that this is essentially, for most people, this will be a three-vaccine okay. program. But the sooner we can do that, the better. You, you know, in spite of the fact that we have increasing cases of COVID, the reality is that if you're vaccinated, you're very significantly protected. It doesn't mean that you can't die or can't be hospitalized or can't end up in critical care, but your chances of that are much, much less. And that's a point that we seem to have forgotten okay. to make as strongly as we should. Okay. Are we making that point strongly enough, Willie O'Dea, about getting that remaining yeah. number of people vaccinated? Well, just to go back to what David said about beds, I mean, 800 acute beds have been added to the system since this government came into office. The ICU capacity has been increased by 25%, despite the delays and despite the long lead-in time. And there are more What's beds and more, ICU, and more ICU beds on the way. Now, to answer your question, I agree... I agree, Just to go back to that, because you brought up that point, what's happened since the summer in terms of what we're doing for this winter and what um, Fergal Hickey was saying about tackling the overcrowding crisis back in August? The, the, the summer, we always have a winter plan, you know, to deal yeah. with the winter situation. That came out and today the, when we're facing no, these I, very high numbers and a this, system this, under this, immense pressure. Well, since, since the winter plan has, has, has been initiated, this is the time, winter, in which it's produced to deal with a particular flood during the winter. So, look, I agree with Fargal Hickey. I mean, we have to extend the booster campaign. That has been done.
I agree with him. We have to try to encourage the seven percent, only seven percent people who haven't been vaccinated. Vaccinated. Accounting for forty yes, percent of people in that is, ICs, that is, of Yes, that, that, that is being done, and I agree with him that we've to ex ex extend and expand capacity, and the money has been provided to make that happen also. Okay. When what, I was in Limerick, oh, when I was in Limerick a number of weeks ago, and I met with hospital management, they talked about a ninety-eight bed unit that they had been seeking for some time. When I was in Sligo, I was hearing about a fifty-bed unit. When I was in Cork, I was hearing about a fifty-bed unit. All going through the capital approval process that Fergal was talking. About. They've been asking for this three months ago, six and months ago, a year, told? two years ago. Well, the, the process is far too slow. So when when uh, when we hear about 800 beds that were brought into the system, most of those were temporary beds which were already opened. So yes, the funding was made available to make them permanent, but it wasn't real additional capacity. Most of those hospitals haven't got it. And Willie has to accept, even in his own constituency, I know I was there, we have a dire situation in the emergency department. And people are doing their best. Those on the front line are really, really tired. There's real fatigue. But when you have a hospital manager telling me, we've been looking for the capital funding for this for the best part of a year and for all of the COVID funding, for all of the talk, it's come and it's gone. We're now in the middle of November. We now have a real crisis. We have unscheduled care that's cancelled at record levels yeah, and it's I'm unsustainable. Fully, yeah, I'm, I, look, at, look I'm, we I'm talked about Limerick aware. and I'm I have to say about Limerick, they're top, yeah. of the they're top on the trolley watch yeah, today. There's 76 people yeah, in trolleys or waiting yeah, I, I admission that. to the hospital there. Look, like, What do you say to your look, constituents about had, that? Look, I'm in touch with my constituents about it and they're in touch with me. Look, we've had the COVID, which means there's a lot of elective procedures were cancelled, you know, on a number of occasions. We've had the cyber attack. We have a situation now due to COVID that there are about, what, almost 4,000 people on sick leave from the health service, which obviously affects, mm. you know, the, the services they can provide. Now, what, I, what I'm saying to you is we have had extra capacity. We provided extra capacity in U University Hospital Limerick. It's not enough. And, you know, I agree what with What about David. those I units and those extra beds agree, that the, all the managers I, have been I, talking I, I about agree. in the various hospitals? I agree. Look, the government, the, 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 the primary function of government is to provide the money, and the government has provided the money. The procedure certainly is too slow. Something has to be done about that. that so is what not, are you saying? It's got the go-ahead. It's got the go-ahead. The money has been provided. Taxpayers' money has been provided. The procedure for putting it in place, the procedure for the drawdown of the capital is very slow. The money very has cumbersome. not been made available for the money all has of those... Been no, sorry, Willie, one second. The yeah. money has not been, avail been made available for those beds I talked about in Limerick or anywhere else because very little capital funding was made available. Only no. €300 million Euro of additional no. spend right across all of no, the healthcare the system been, was in the budget no, just gone. No, if and you just, the, If you just bear with me for yeah, a second, Willie, because yeah. I was in your constituency, yeah. I met with hospital management. They told me what... They have sought and they told me what they have not got and the funding has not been approved. We also have, Claire, and the motion you talked about that I'll bring forward tomorrow in the Dáil is about the ambulance services. I met ambulance paramedics today who are at their wit's end. And many of them are saying that they are not able to provide the service that people need because of the lack of capacity. They're also strained. And by the way, we have ambulances parked up outside hospitals for six hours, imagine, or more, yeah. because patients cannot be transferred into hospital beds because okay. we don't have... The money, that has been, the money has been uh, uh, provided. The money, the money is available. The money so has, those beds the in money has been budgeted, be delivered? The money has been budgeted for, as you very well know, it no, hasn't it'll, be been delivered, it'll be delivered when, 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 when this exhaustive process, which I agree with you, is too long. And well, too I'm exhausted listening and, to and your too, response. And too, and too complex. Uh, is, 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 is concluded. Now, as regards the ambulance service, certainly, 
I mean, you know, you hear of individual instances about the ambulance service. I had occasion to call in an ambulance the other day because I came across somebody who had been injured and, and, and lying on the street, and the ambulance arrived very quickly. The vast majority of ambulance uh, calls are respond within the requisite period. Now, can I just say one thing, other thing to you? In 2020, the amount of money provided for the ambulance service was six and a half million. This year, it's 18 million, an almost threefold okay. increase. <clears throat> All right, okay. Uh, I just want, want to get just a very brief last word with you, Dr. Hickey, because you are at the front line there. The winter plan has been announced. What are your fears for the winter ahead? Do you think it can be managed or are we in serious trouble with this? Um, unfortunately, I expect things to get worse. Um, they have been progressively getting worse. We set record numbers of attendances in emergency departments, uh, believe it or not, in August, September, October, set record daily figures. So if you add to that the increasing burden of COVID and the lack of capacity and the lack of real capacity, okay. the issue that was spoken about in, in the context of the ambulance service is that ambulances cannot offload patients because there's no space to decant them into, particularly in the environment in which you're trying desperately to keep patients okay. apart from one another, trying to achieve a degree of social distancing which most of the time proves to be impossible in an emergency department, unfortunately. OK, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to you, Dr Fergal Hickey. Uh, Willie and David will be staying with us. And coming up after the break, we discuss what work-from-home advice could mean for businesses right across the country. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back. Now, the Cabinet Subcommittee on COVID-19 has been underway tonight and the government is moving towards a recommendation that digital COVID certificates would soon be required in gyms, hairdressers and barbers. Willie O'Dea and David Cullinan are still here and I'm joined by Labour and Employment Lawyer Richard Grogan and via Skype by Director of Employer Relations at IBEC, Maeve McElwee. You're all very welcome along. Um, I just want to start on, on the push and the recommendation that came from NEFID about working from home. We know that, you know, employees who had been working from home had been returning to the workplace since the end of September, um, Richard. And from your point of view, from a legal point of view, this recommendation from NEFET, it's not mandated. So it's, it's to encourage people to work from home. Tell us about the difference there and, and the challenges that poses. Well, what it is, is they say, it's is it possible to work from home? Well, everything is possible. 
So you've now got an employee saying, I think it's possible I can work from home. The employer says, I don't think it's possible. The legislation promised on this hasn't come through. This whole issue of working from home, the issue on it is we need to have the businesses open. We need to have people coming in because it's not just people coming into the businesses. It's people who are then going out for lunch. They're buying their lunch. They're bringing money into the economy. And we've had a very wishy-washy approach. Yeah. As an employer, you can't ask somebody if they're vaccinated. Now, if somebody gets, is a close contact, you have the situation that you have to treat everybody as unvaccinated and send them home. We can't even have antigen testing. In Germany, you get antigen tested. It lasts for three days. You get it on Monday, it covers you up until Wednesday in the workplace. It catches a lot of COVID. And we've got to keep the businesses open because if we close down this time, then I'm going to be back doing what I was doing in 2008 and 2009, and that's a tsunami of redundancies. And nobody, but nobody yeah. wants that. Now, the public health gu guidelines haven't allowed for that to date. They haven't said anything about antigen testing in the workplace. Um, and they, you know, they would argue about the approach being wishy-washy or otherwise. What do you think about what Micheál Martin had to say about the strength of the economy is linked to COVID under control? So while, while we might like people in a workplace, if, if we have a problem with rising COVID cases, then that's not good for the economy either. Look, come tomorrow, the pop goes down. If somebody now has come back to work and they're going to be put back on the pop, they're not going to get it. They're going to get... The, the, the normal social welfare. So we have got to turn around and we have to wake up and say, we have got to start taking some hard decisions. Nobody wants to be antigen tested. I don't want to be antigen tested, every, you know, twice a week. But the reality is we have got to do something to keep the businesses open, to save the business and to save jobs. Because otherwise we're going to arrive with the wishy-washy approach at the moment with personal responsibility and advice. Well, it's personal responsibility that I drive on the left-hand side of the road, and I, and I, I should that be okay. it? So that's the problem. Okay. What do you say to that, Willie O'Dea? That you know the government have stalled the ball on things like antigen testing and all these measures that could be in place that would allow workplaces to keep staff on the work on the work floor. Well, antigen testing is obviously a good way to do it, and uh, that's something that I personally have been on on record as advocating for quite a long time. But it's not my, my even going to my, happen my, my, now. My, we understand under the recommendations they're talking about extending it to to schools, but not workplaces as yet. Well, I think it ultimately, as Richard has indicated by Richard there, it'll have to be extended to workplaces if we're to, you know, if, if the situation continues as it is, because uh, my understanding is that NIFIT were very much opposed to the idea of antigen testing, and uh, they managed to... Um, they managed to persuade the government, uh, you know, not to not to proceed uh, as quickly as they probably should have proceeded. It's not a silver bullet. It's not a silver bullet. I mean, the PCR. Yeah, they were in front of an Oroctus committee the, the, saying the PCR saying that they weren't in favour of it, and we had yes, it being likened yeah. to to snake oil. We know absolutely. Yeah, well, the PCR test, of course, is much more a much more valuable test and a much more accurate test. But certainly, certainly, if you look at what other countries are doing, there is a place for antigen testing. Okay. And, you know, if the, if the legislation has to be changed to enable that to happen, then it should be changed. OK, I it want to bring Maeve McElwee in um, here on this one, um, Director of Employer Relations at IBEC. Maeve, you're very welcome to the programme. Um, just for your take on this decision that, that is due and will probably be announced <coughs> tomorrow on foot of the advice from NEFET that to work from home... Um, where possible, but in a very uh, in a very urgent way from NEFA, they're calling for this, aren't they? That it's more than just encouragement, it should be actively pursued. 
Yeah, I think, you know, employers recognise and acknowledge the challenge facing government now between that whole issue of the managing public health, but also trying to wake up, uh, uh, weigh up some of those economic considerations. So I think, you know, when we look at um, the, the situation as it stands now, as Richard has said, we've had lots of businesses that have been closed for a very long period of time. We have all sectors of the economy um, back. And I think really important that we keep as many people in employment as we can at this point, um, and especially in those sectors that have been hardest okay. hit and were closed for the longest. So, so it would seem that for the government to adopt a remote working policy again, it's probably a reasonable balance at this point in time, because as employers with office workers, we can actually work remotely, whereas lots of other sectors will not be in a position to do so. So I think, you know, it's, it's a reasonable balance. It's not an unreasonable ask. So you think it's only going to be asked of office workers then, Maeve, that other people won't say and other employees won't say, well, look, Neffet and the government are saying I should be working from home now. I actually can't go into my retail job or I can't go into another place where you would say, no, you know, that that's necessary that, that you should be in the workplace. Well, I think the requirement is to work from uh, a remote location where you reasonably can. And all throughout the pandemic to date, people have worked on the, the shop floor. They've worked in manufacturing in a very safe way. And that's because they've adhered to the conditions that are set out under the Work Safely protocol. And where that has been adhered to on the employer and the employee side, working carefully and closely with lead employer representatives, then we have a situation where actually there are many safe environments in which to work. Nothing is perfect, but throughout the pandemic, before we had vaccinations, that was a safe way to work. And I think we recognise for office workers and employers in office environments, have implemented the work safely protocol so, in full. They are safe environments. Yeah, I just think the to, issue that, here that the government are looking for is to take some of the circulation of people out and reduce down social contacts, perhaps take people out of public transport okay. um, and some of the public spaces. Okay, uh, so it's not per se that offices are unsafe spaces, but it's all the commute around that, the travel, what's involved that can lead to the spread of this virus. Do you agree with the move um, that is likely to be adopted by government on this one, David? I agree with Neffet's advice in relation to people working from home where it's possible. Obviously, if you go back to the earlier discussion we had in relation to hospitals, we obviously have to keep people safe and reduce hospitalisations. What we need is a clear plan and not mixed messages. So obviously, those people who will be working in uh, in offices need to be doing so in offices that are properly ventilated. There is concerns about uh, overcrowded public transport. All of these issues have to be dealt with. But we also have to look at all of the other options. As Willie said, antigen testing. We're behind the curveball on antigen testing for far too long. It has to be hardwired into our overall response, not as a replacement for anything else, but as an additional tool. I want to see a plan in relation to the booster jab, because despite mm. what's happening in the hospitals, the very fact that over 95% of the adult population are vaccinated, fully vaccinated, has meant that we have less hospitalizations than we would have okay. for the levels of uh, COVID numbers that we have. And we also need uh, to see a range of other measures as well. So I want to hear what Neffet has to say, but we have to act. Well, we've heard what, what Neffet has said, but we're waiting to hear what, what government... And what, what government says, what but, government but we need to hear the... Yeah, OK, I just want to ask about the extension of COVID certs and passes there. We're likely to see it, as David has, has outlined, in places like gyms and hairdressers now, aside from um, bars and, and restaurants and other outlets. Um, do you think it should be in place in the workplace also? Uh, no, I, I think I think that 
gets into the area of excluding vaccinated and unvaccinated people from the workplace. And that is probably a step too far. That's why you have to go so for something like the antigen testing and you test everybody. In Germany, vaccinated, unvaccinated, you're, you're, you're tested. And you have to have the health and safety issues in this. Mm. And by the way, extending it to, to, to gyms and bars and everybody, who's going to police this? Who's going to be actually out policing this? So, I mean, some of this planning that is coming out, where's the staff to go down and check well, I suppose the argument is they're doing it in bars. Well, someone yeah. would say it's not it's not being implemented fully in, in, in places that are requiring it to be implemented at the moment, but that it is... Um, You'll have the likes of the Health and Safety Authority that are supposed to be carrying out these checks to see that, that all premises are complying with it. But they don't have the staff. I mean, th this, is, this is the problem. Yeah. They don't have the staff to do it. So this extension, there's a simple way to deal with it. You bring in antigen testing in offices for all workers in okay. all workplaces, and that stops it. Uh, what do you think about what you've been hearing, now, particularly on the subject of antigen testing now, mm. because, yes, you've acknowledged, you've said, I thought we should have done this ages ago, mm. but it's seven or eight euro per test. Yeah. The cost it, is prohibitive. It would have to be subsidised, obviously. I mean, you know, people... But it's be, free in, in other countries. Well, 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 it could be, I mean, it could be free. I mean, subsidisation means it could be either free or you could be, it could be at a nominal cost. Uh, subsidised means it's prefer, not free, prefer, but it's prefer, discounted, prefer it, I prefer it to be, I prefer it to be free, obviously. Obviously, I would will, it, will, will government give that consideration? And, and I, think, I think they will give that consideration. Yeah, I think they will give that consideration. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I must Who, say... I'm, who's saying I'm that now? I'm that, that, that the free antigen testing may be, may be coming online well, for I'm, people? I'm, well, I'm saying that I'd be strongly advocating it within my, whatever small bit of influence I have in government. And I know a lot of my colleagues feel the same way because I've been speaking to them about it. So there will be a lot of pressure to have free antigen tests. Uh, the other thing is, I'm trying to agree with Richard. I mean, I, I, I can't see the logic of extending this, the, 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 the COVID passes to gyms, barbers, etc. Because, you know, you have other countries which have done much better than Ireland in relation to COVID incidents. And they don't have. They don't have. They, they've abandoned, like the United Kingdom, for example, Northern Ireland. They've abandoned the whole idea of COVID certs entirely. So, you, what do and you think there is, about and there that? Is, and there is a difficulty, no question about it. Well, you must look at the results. I mean, they're doing better than us. So, I mean, so you, how, how, do, how, do, how does extending it uh, improve the situation So you think, here? get rid of them? Well, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not, a, I'm not opposed, in principle, to extending the covers, but, but I, I fail to see the value of it. That's all I'm saying to you. I fail to see the value of it. So you're pointing to other countries where they don't have COVID passes. Japan, yeah. But none of in this other is countries, easy, and you're, Sorry, and you're saying we should look at abandoning the whole idea of having COVID I'm, passes. I'm not. I'm not saying that we should look at the. Whole, I'm just saying that there are other countries that don't have COVID certs. They have done better than us. So what we are proposing is to extend the COVID certs. And uh, and what what is the basis for that? I mean, what is yeah, the? Yeah, I don't know. Well, you're in government. Where like, is the evidence? I mean, well, I'm not a member of the government. I'm just a humble backbencher. Where is the evidence that extending those passes to those extra venues? Uh, is going to make a difference. None of this is easy, clear on anybody, and I accept that. But we are so far behind in relation to antigen testing. We're talking about extending the COVID certs. The COVID certs also should include proof of testing. That's what happens if you travel internationally. Mm. And for so long, we've been talking about antigen testing. There was an expert group established okay. nearly a year ago. And here we are, maybe rolled out to schools, maybe rolled out here, maybe rolled out there. And it still hasn't happened. So I think there's a, a sense of urgency that has to be brought True. to the issue of antigen True. testing. I, and as I said, and I agree with Willie, yeah. not as a replacement for anything else, but as an additional is, tool that is, we can yeah. use. Is there a point yeah. to be made that COVID certs 
haven't prevented the spread of the virus when we see the figures here? Well, I don't know the answer to that question. Obviously, it's a, it's a matter for NEFID. I think that what we also need to look at is the booster jab because we know what did work is the vaccine rollout itself. And obviously, I would welcome if the booster will be uh, brought out to those over 50 or rolled out to those over 50. But what we need is a plan for the general population rollout. Less of the mixed messages, right. less of the confusion, more clarity and a plan that okay, works. OK, we'll have to see. Uh, will we get that clarity tomorrow? We'll have to leave it there for now. My thanks to Maeve McElwee, who joined us from Ibeck, uh, via Skype tonight and my, the panel here in studio and coming up after the break Father Peter McFerry on Ireland's homeless crisis stay with us Welcome back. Now, with rising COVID-19 cases dominating the news headlines, has Ireland's homeless crisis been forgotten? Homeless campaigner Father Peter McFerry joins me now. And I was just thinking about that, Peter, um, in terms of the way our news cycle is. There's so much about COVID. We were talking about the health system there at the top. But, you know, a bit like our burgeoning health system, the homeless crisis is there and, and it hasn't gone away. But we're not talking about it that much this year. Yeah, I think COVID obviously has dominated the uh, the media, uh, and rightly so. Uh, so it's pushed homelessness back to the uh, onto the back burner. But as well as that, you know, homelessness has now been with us for so long, and it's been at a crisis level for so long. I think the media are tired of it. <laughs> they, you know, you come to a point where it's no longer news to be reporting about uh, uh, rising levels of, of homelessness or reporting about the difficulties homeless people have had. They've done all that for the last 15 years. And yeah. I, I think that's maybe, we, we've, there's fatigue, there's homeless fatigue, I think, is, has, has set in at Although this it's not fatigue for people who are out in the streets. It certainly isn't. <laughs> and, and facing into this winter. No. Uh, once again, rough sleepers and all of you guys helping and, and campaigning on their behalf. What are the, 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 the homeless figures like now? Um, we've heard a lot about, uh, and when we've looked at this at other times, you talk about the number of, of children in emergency accommodation, the number of families affected. Um, in figures right now, how bad is the situation, Peter? It's, uh, it's pretty bad. There's over 8,000 people who are homeless, uh, over 2,000 children who are homeless. Uh, one of the pluses of COVID was that the number of homeless people dropped because they brought in a rent freeze and they brought in a ban on evictions from the private rented sector. And since most people becoming homeless today are coming from the private rented sector, uh, that stopped that flow into homelessness. And the figures dropped dramatically mm. by between 1,500 and 2,000 people less homeless because of those two measures. Now they have, uh, they have abolished those two measures and the number of homeless people now is rising again uh, and I, I presume will continue, will continue to rise. So the numbers are still at that uh, crisis level. Yeah. You know, when I started working with homeless people, <laughs> I was in the 1970s, there were about a thousand homeless people in Ireland, about a thousand. Now there's officially over 8,000, but unofficially, because many homeless people aren't counted, unofficially, uh, it's probably double that. How frustrating has it been for you then when you saw those two measures that you're talking about that it allowed families who had been in dire straits by, by freezing rents and by making things more accessible to them, they could come out of that situation. 
And, and now we're seeing when things pick up and that those measures that you're talking about disappear and, and we're facing the problem back again. It's, it's very frustrating. I mean, there's two problems. There's housing homeless people, but the bigger problem, the more urgent problem is preventing more people coming into homelessness. Because unless you cut off that flow into homelessness, trying to house homeless people is like emptying the bathwater with the tap still full on. So we got to prevent that. And the two measures that were most effective uh, were those, the rent freeze and the, uh, the ban on evictions. We are calling for that ban on evictions to continue for maybe three years, four years. Uh, the argument against it is sometimes that it's against the right to private property, which is in the Constitution. Mm. I don't buy that, but if it is, let's test it. <laughs> uh, let's bring in the legislation, send it to the president. The president sends it to the Supreme Court and test it. So uh, I, I, it's very frustrating. There are measures there you know can contain homelessness uh, and they're not being implemented. They're not even being considered. And mm. um, we were talking about the effect that the pandemic has had on everyone. Um, how has it affected homeless people? What have people said to you about their situation and, and whether it's worsened, whether they're worried about their health, about catching COVID on the street? Um, and or, or in, in hostels or temporary accommodation? Well, there's one positive effect of COVID as well, that uh, we got more people into long-term accommodation during COVID than we ever did before. I mean, before COVID, we were getting about a thousand people a year into out of homelessness into long-term accommodation. Last year, we got about 1,300 into long-term, and this year we expect 1,400. The reason for that is that Airbnbs came back on, on, onto the private residential. And because of lockdowns and because people were, didn't want to go out, uh, there weren't people queuing up to try and view these apartments mm. that were available for rent. So landlords were ringing us <laughs> and asking us, do we have anybody that we could, uh, we could uh, put to him for, for to rent? That's a great situation that you found yourself it's in. It's a win-win. They but know we're not going to send somebody who's going to wreck the place. Uh, and they, 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 it's a win-win for the landlord. It's a win-win for, win -win for us. That was the one what's advantage. What's happening to those people now? And they're still in their private rent accommodation. Okay. Oh, yeah, and they're able there. to stay there. Well, and, and, that's and, permanent. Yeah, it's permanent accommodation. And that's been a, a huge turnaround that was for people. What, that was the one advantage right. of COVID for us. But the disadvantages were, were manif manifold. Uh, there, it was everything closed. You know, drop-in centres closed, uh, treatment centres closed, AA meetings and NA meetings were cancelled. Mm. Uh, all the support services that homeless people uh, help, that helped homeless people uh, closed, and that led to we'd have noticed uh, an increase in mental health difficulties. We'd have noticed people who are uh, in recovery relapsing back again into into addiction. Uh, it, it was it was it was very difficult for yeah, uh, for and that's something people. that has been spoken about starkly is the, is the impact the pandemic has had on people's mental health. Yeah. For people in a homeless situation, they're already very vulnerable, yeah. I imagine, on that front. That it must must have worsened a lot of people's situations. It did. We'd have noticed. Uh, I'd have noticed a big increase in in mental health uh, issues with 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 homeless people. Uh, but however, having said that. Very few homeless people actually got COVID. The percentage of homeless people that caught COVID was in the single figures. Uh, don't know why, 
But no homeless person that I know of was hospitalized. Nobody certainly died from COVID. So, and I think that's remarkable because homeless people are living in congregated settings. Mm. They're sharing rooms with three or four or five or 10 other people. Uh, and uh, it may be different people, different nights. So uh, it's really, I, mean, I thought COVID would run through the homeless population ramp, rampant. Uh, but it didn't but actually, it didn't. and the HSE, in fairness, they 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 addressed it very well. They they Good. rented a couple of hotels okay. where homeless people could uh, isolate. And of course, fundraising is a big thing, and that's something that uh, Peter McFerry and others like him um, would like to push. We'll have to leave it there from all of us here. Uh, take care. Good night. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.